you want to get out your message outline so you can follow along. It says where it all began. Today we are starting a new series, which we will be in for uh, about five months, uh, pretty much through May. Um, sort of a unique series, and one that I'm, I'm excited about, but a little scared because I haven't really done this much before. Um, so we'll see how it goes. And by May, I'll say it was great, or we're never doing that again, something like that. So good to see everybody on this cold day. There's a number of folks here I haven't met, I don't know, and I would love to meet you after church. So don't run away real quick and come say hi. Um, that would be wonderful. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, it's easy to find. It's the first book. So I'm going to read a couple of verses from chapter 2 and then five verses from the beginning of chapter 3. So if you would turn there, start Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, and then Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. So... Uh, let's go ahead and do that. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Jump down to Genesis 3, first five verses. Now the serpent was craftier than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the women, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. And as always, thank you for making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray you would give us a greater understanding of who we are. And what we do, help us understand why we keep sinning. Help us understand how you keep forgiving us. Help us to know you more this morning. For this, we need your grace. We always need your grace. Please give it to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be honest, there is a lot of things that we say wrong. Sometimes, and this is often the case with preachers, uh, we get talking so fast, we start tripping over our own words, or we get tongue-tied. Sometimes people just mumble, and they're hard to hear, and we end up misunderstanding them. And sometimes people just repeat nonsensical sayings that they just don't understand. It's kind of like song lyrics that, are, that we get wrong where there's a bad moon on the rise becomes 
there's a bathroom on the right, which is, of course, how I always sing it. If you don't recognize those lyrics, then you can sign up for Remedial Classic Rock with Frank Wong. Um, we'll be doing that. Whatever the reason we misspeak, why we misunderstand, or how we misuse words, it seems clear that we've corrupted parts of the English language. We've changed the usage of some phrases so much so that their value to us has declined. Following phrases often come out incorrectly. So let's set the record straight and look up on the screen. We're going to go through 10 misused phrases. And the first one is, for all intents and purposes. It is not for all intensive purposes. If you say for all intensive purposes, you mean for all these very thorough purposes, which doesn't make a lot of sense. On the other hand, for all intents and purposes, three words, means for all the reasons I did this and all the outcomes. It's a much stronger cliche. Second one. <laughs> you, you want to nip it in the bud not nip it in the butt. This phrase implies that you cut a new bud off of a plant, that you cut something off, that you stop it before it went too far, not that you bit someone in the backside. Next one. One and the same, not one in the same. One in the same refers to one thing and a group of other things that look the same, which is kind of a meaningless sentiment. One and the same is actually just a more emphatic way of saying the same. Fourth, we're there by accident, not on accident. Both terms have become acceptable. By accident is technically correct. So you do something on purpose, but by accident, unless you actually grew up in my house where you may hear someone protest that they did it accidentally on purpose. <laughs> Five, you home in, you don't hone in. Even though most dictionaries now list both as acceptable, home in is the original phrase. It means to approach a target or goal, while hone means to sharpen. So you can hone your skills but a detective would home in on a suspect. Number six, it's a case in point, not a case and point. Case in point means here's an example of the point I'm trying to make. Case and point says your point is separate from your case, which is not helpful to your argument. Seven, very common. You've got another think coming. Now you've got another thing coming. So what thing do I have coming? No, instead it's you've got another think coming, which is a way of saying think again. The original phrase was, if that's what you think, you've got another think coming. And we've just dropped the first clause. Number eight. You wreak havoc. You don't wreck Havoc, because if you wrecked havoc, that would be to destroy havoc, which is the exact opposite of that phrase's meaning. 
when you wreak havoc, you're spreading chaos, anarchy, and destruction. Or you're a toddler, one of those. <laughs> Number nine, I couldn't care less. Not I could care less. Along with the first one, this is the one that I have been caught maybe once or twice saying. If you could care less, you're admitting there's other less important things in the world which takes away the sting of your comment. By saying you couldn't care less, you mean nothing else exists on the planet that matters less to you. And the last one is beck and call. Not beck and call. Having someone at your beck and call means they cater to your every need. Beck and call doesn't even make sense. Beckon is a verb which can't modify an adjective, and I'm sure you understand that. <laughs> so, thank you. So how have we let these common phrases become misused and misunderstood and misinterpreted? The most common answer, we talk too fast. And we force two words together so they sound like one word, which is how intense and purposes becomes intensive purposes. There's also just plain old-fashioned laziness. Simply don't put in the time and effort to learn them, speak them, and understand them in the correct manner in which they were intended to be understood. Now having to deal with misused phrases like for all intensive purposes or one and the same or I could care less is in the long run not that big a deal, unless of course you're an English teacher or even worse, an English major. <laughs> but what happens when we allow the same kinds of errors to creep into the Bible? Then it becomes a pretty big deal. Because when we let common phrases become misused and misunderstood, we end up applying those phrases incorrectly. And we end up obeying what the Bible doesn't say and believing what God doesn't mean. I mean, it's hard enough to obey what the Bible does say and believe what the Bible, uh, what God does mean. But in short, when we misread, misuse, misunderstand, and misinterpret the scriptures, we begin to wreak havoc in our personal lives and in our church life. And when that happens, we have to stop. We have to ask ourselves, where did all this go wrong? Where did it all begin? Before we answer that question, we need to back up a little bit and look at the Bible as a whole. After all, the Bible is filled with common phrases and common verses. And we're going to look at about 20 of them over the next five months. Things like an eye for an eye. Or where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Or do not judge, or you too will be judged. All derived from the Bible, all come from uh, various Bible verses. All of them have been misused and misunderstood. However, when they're interpreted and applied properly, these and other God-inspired truths have shaped cultures and countless generations of people throughout history. And indeed, the Bible is a life-changing book. It tells us who God is and how he's working in our world today, 
who reveals how he's faithfully been at work in the past and what his will is for the future. Perhaps the most important thing uh, about the Bible is that it's a work of God that possesses great power, written so that we might believe and receive salvation that comes through faith in Christ alone. Joanne's home sick and I don't have my tea and I'm sort of freaking out. Anyway, according to the Bible's own testimony, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, some versions say inspired, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And therefore the Bible has authority over us. But this authority is not merely derived by how it functions or by what place it holds in our lives, but from its claim to be the very voice and revelation of God. It's a pretty big claim. That's why we call it God's Word. <coughs> Believers regard the Bible as the place where God continues to speak truth into our lives. It says it's a living and active Word. The sufficient foundation for all of life and practice for a believing Christian. Written by nearly 40 human authors, over a span of about 1,500 years, the Bible is remarkably consistent. Throughout the years, there's been lots of attempts to attack its truthfulness and its integrity, uh, but it has always withstood those tests. Even archaeology has empiric empirically verified its historicity and its accuracy. And when I think when all the facts are known, the Bible will continue to show itself to be without error and the foundation of all truth. However, when it's mishandled and when it's used inappropriately, the Bible can turn into a dangerous book. Because as I said before, when we misread, misuse, misunderstand, and misinterpret the scriptures, we begin to wreak havoc in our personal lives and in our church life. So, now, one of the really hard things about this series on the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible is we're going to do something that I have taught you not to do. Hopefully, you've been paying attention. For years, I have taught that you need to find the main point of the passage and stick to that. I even have my RTS students repeat the saying, the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. You guys remember that? Yeah, we do it every class until they gag. But now for this series on the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible, we are not going to focus on the main point of the text. But rather we're going to focus on how we miss the main point. Or how we misuse the main point. So it's a really different series. And it's a really different way of looking at these verses. And I said, hopefully it will have some value by the time we get to the end. Because the reality is, for hundreds of years, well-intentioned Christians have misquoted the Bible and misunderstood its meaning, leaving behind a trail of confusion and faulty decisions pertaining to God's will for one's life. Many a theological heresy, most heresies have resulted from the misuse or misinterpretation of Scripture. 
And this can happen no matter how noble the intentions of its readers. And all leads us to the purpose of this sermon series, to come face to face with these uh, misused and misunderstood verses. Verses that have lost their context and taken on new meanings outside of the stories and teachings of Scripture. And so our task for the series will be to bring these verses, uh, these uh, Scripture passages and others, back into their proper context so that they can be interpreted and applied correctly. To be sure, times change, applications vary, but the author's original meaning and intent and the subsequent principles derived from that are fixed and eternal. Let me say that again. The original author's meaning and intent and the subsequent principles derived from that are fixed and eternal. A text can mean more today than it meant when it was written, but it cannot mean less. We can't do away with or ignore what the text meant when it was written. And we can't assign an original meaning to the text that the original audience would never have understood. So when you read about locusts in the book of Revelation, those are not attack helicopters, which have made no sense in the first century. I don't care what popular author says they are. It's therefore absolutely critical that we understand what these verses actually meant when they were written so that we can apply them properly to our own lives today. It's only then that we can say we're faithfully using God's word as the Holy Spirit intended for us. So this is going to be a several-month exercise in how to interpret the Bible correctly. We're going to look at a bunch of different verses where it's done poorly. Think about it. How many times in your life, let me just ask, how many of you have ever been misquoted? Have you ever been misquoted? About half of you. Something you said has been taken out of context and perhaps used against you. That can be more than frustrating. When that happens, there's this burning desire to set the record straight, to justify ourselves, to defend ourselves against false information that may paint us in a negative light. And those situations can start quite innocently. Imagine a loved one overhearing a conversation you're having with someone on the phone. And because they're only hearing one side of it, they don't have the context of what's being said or why. And assumptions are made and wrong conclusions are drawn. Kind of like that State Farm commercial where the wife comes downstairs in the middle of the night to find her husband on the phone. And he's talking with Jake from State Farm. But she suspects the worst. So she grabs the phone and asks, what are you wearing, Jake, from State Farm? And the camera cuts this like average Joe in a cubicle and he's kind of like, uh khakis? And she says, well, she sounds hideous. And her husband's like, well, she's a guy, so, and then it cuts away. You know, it's all done to be humorous, 
But that sort of thing happens all the time. And in today's digital age, the world is swarming with fake news, photoshopped pictures, edited sound bites, bits of information that can be easily misused and misunderstood when they're taken out of their original context. We just went through an election season. This happened all the time. This constantly happens in political circles. Candidates find their words being edited or used in a way to undermine their integrity or to make them look foolish or to make them look extreme. Sometimes even their words are edited to make them say the exact opposite of what they meant. And anybody that's involved in politics, we have a number of people who are, all attest that that happens regularly. So we need to find like those people who are doing that. You know, because spin is just another way of saying lying. But the Bible has said in Ecclesiastes, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. People have been doing this kind of stuff for hundreds and thousands of years just without the benefit of technology. So where did it all begin to go wrong? Well, the answer is back to our passage for today. It all started to go wrong in a royal garden with the fine-sounding name of Eden. One could argue that misquotes, false information, and misinterpretations have been around since the appearance of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It was there that Satan sought to undermine God's word. And the tactics he used are still being used by people today at all sorts of different levels, at all sorts of different places. So we read about this calamity in our text for today in Genesis 3, most commonly known as the fall of man. But the fall didn't start with sin. It actually starts with Adam's introduction to two trees. The last half of Genesis 2 verse 9 introduces this. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These are rather important trees because the first thing we hear about them is God's guidance. God tells them how they're supposed to deal with these trees. These two trees stood side by side in the center of the garden. And through these two trees, the destiny of man would be decided. Life is at the center of the garden, and eating fruit from the tree of life results in continued life. And after the fall, Adam was excluded from the garden. See that towards the end of Genesis 3, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And man is barred from the tree of life. The good news is, tree of life comes back. Because we read about it at the very end of the Bible. This is one of those remarkably consistent things. The beginning of the Bible, tree of life. End of the Bible, tree of life. Revelation 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
So the tree of life gives life and it grows in eternity. Now Adam's not tempted to take from the tree of life because at that point he had life. Adam's responsibility in the garden is made clear uh, by God himself. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So work is before the fall. Work is not a sinful thing. God doesn't hate you and said, ah, you shall work. Work came first. Now, it got harder and worse because of the fall and all of that, but work is not intrinsically uh, a punishment. It may feel like that sometimes, but that wasn't its intent. And Adam's first, or God's first word to Adam is a permissive one. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. He can partake of uh, all the stuff in the garden to his heart's content. Includes the tree of life. This is a lavish, extravagant abundance. Adam can take from the tree of life. Everything's there for him. But God's permission is paired with a prohibition. It says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one tree you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. To disobey and eat from this tree would bring sure death. So what's the temptation for Adam in light of the every tree abundance of the garden and the surely die threat of the forbidden tree? Simply this, the temptation to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to seek wisdom without reference to the word of God. It's an act of moral autonomy. I can do this on my own. You ever dress a toddler? No, I can do it. Pretty similar. It's deciding what's right without reference to God's revealed will. Adam and Eve desired wisdom, but they sought it apart from God. They assumed God's role in determining right and wrong. So we get to the very heart of original sin, to sidestep God and his word in order to become wise. And in contrast, Jesus, the second Adam, lived by the word of God. Now that's important. A lot of debate about Adam and Eve. No first Adam, no second Adam. You get rid of Adam, salvation's out the window. And that's a long theological argument, but uh, you can't have Jesus as the second Adam if you get rid of the first Adam. So having Adam as a real historical person created by God is theologically very, very fundamental. Um, so just remember that. I know there's people that don't think so, but um, the sermon's probably for them. Jesus, we know he lives by the word of God. Matthew 4.4, 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus lived every second of his life in radical dependence on God's word. He believed God's word. The first Adam decided to willfully disregard God's revealed will and seek wisdom on his own. And Adam did obtain the knowledge of good and evil, but it killed him because he got his wisdom his way. So it is with us. What we do with the word of God is everything. 
Imagine for a moment that you don't know the ending. You don't know how this is all going to end. And Adam has the whole garden before him. He could have taken of the tree of life and all that it promised. But he decides to seek wisdom from the tree of knowledge apart from God's word. And in doing so, he died. It's the same temptation for us today to establish our wisdom apart from God's word. If we do that, then what happened to Adam happens to us. We fall. So let's turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 opens with Satan's deception. It opens with Satan's deception. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So as we come to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are living in unparalleled splendor amidst crystal waters and the green forests of the Garden of Eden and companionship with each other, with all the animals that God's placed in the garden. It's a magnificent couple. And they share the same bones and the same flesh. She was at once his daughter. She came out of him. His sister, they had the same creator father, and his one flesh wife. And their relationship reflects the intimacy and the order of the Trinity foreshadows the intimacy and order of Christ and his bride, which is the church. And yet here, the pinnacle of Genesis, we have a description of this first couple's descent from innocence to guilt. It's real history, but as primal history it describes what's happened countless times down throughout the ages. These verses describe the dialogue that leads to the descent of Adam and Eve into the pit. And the surprise here is that the initiator of the dialogue is a talking snake. I'm not a big fan of snakes. I don't think I would be a big fan of a talking snake. I mean, talking snake, running Dave. That's just how that goes. Um, Jeff Jarrell at this point it's not a bad snake because everything that God created he called good neither is it a good snake gone bad sin had made no entrance into the world at this point rather the New Testament identifies this serpent as the devil so it's not just this run of the mill snake that came by this is the serpent, the devil. Uh, Revelation 12 refers back to this scene. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. And the snake's designation as more crafty than any other beast suggests not a common part of the garden's population. It may also explain why Eve didn't freak out when it started talking. I mean, did it hiss or lisp its words like cartoons? I don't know. Maybe it spoke with a voice like Eve's husband. Maybe that was part of the deception. I don't know. We just don't know. 
but we do know that through its voice. The first thing that we see here is that Satan attacked God's word. The very first thing, Satan attacked God's word. Remember, God's word is responsible for everything that Eve enjoyed. <coughs> Day and night, sun and moon, blue sky, exotic gardens, flowers, singing birds, adoring creatures, her Adam, all came from God's good word, which Satan now attacked. It would seem that Satan's attack wouldn't have a chance, but appearances can be deceiving. The serpent opens the dialogue with a surprise tone in verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan is so subtle. He doesn't directly deny God's word, um, but he introduces the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. Such a thought had never been verbalized before. And Satan's incredulous tone sets up this distortion of God's word. Whereas in Genesis 2, God had generously commanded, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Satan asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a complete distortion and travesty of God's word. God's generosity is being twisted by Satan's question to suggest God's stinginess. And Satan's approach is so subtle that Eve doesn't even suspect that God's word is being attacked. But the seed of doubt about God's word has been planted in her heart that would bear immediate fruit. The snake's distorted question provided Eve with a memorable chance to set the serpent straight. But our first mother failed. Instead, she descended to her own revisions of God's word in three sad uh, cases in which she diminished God's word. I don't necessarily think that she intentionally did that, but certainly the result is that she diminished God's word. God had said back in chapter 2, verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but now Eve leaves out the every. Simply saying, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She's diminishing the provision of God. Her rendition of God's word discounted his generosity. Something bad is starting to happen in her heart. The subtle shift in her heart is further revealed by an addition to God's word. Verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God never said, neither shall you touch it. Eve magnified God's strictness. Just touch that tree and you're dead. Her comments suggest a God who's so harsh that an inadvertent slip would bring death. And lastly, Eve diminished God's word by saying, lest you die. It's not exactly what God said. God said, you will surely die. The certainty of death was removed. So in the extended sentence that makes up verses 2 and 3, Eve diminished God's word. Her revisions approach the word of God uh, wind up putting her in harm's way. And that opens the door even further for the serpent who immediately challenges God's word. Encourages his blasphemous contradiction. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. This is an in-your-face rejection of God's word. It's the serpent's word versus God's word. Note, true, 
that the doctrine of divine judgment is the very first doctrine to be denied. Satan challenged it from the beginning. And modern culture loathes this doctrine. It comes from the fact that this is Satan's world. Nevertheless, divine judgment has fallen and will fall just as surely as it did in the time of Adam and Eve, whether you believe it or not. And the pathology of this dialogue of dissent is so clear. Satan offers a question based on the perversion of God's word. Eve begins to question it herself as evidenced by her revisions of God's word. Then Satan's free to declare God's word is wrong. And Satan, I mean, uh, Eve should have like recoiled in horror and run screaming through the garden to get Adam. Actually, as far as we know, Adam was there the whole time. Adam should have stepped forth to uphold the word of God. Neither happened. And Eve slowly buying in. And she remains entranced before the serpent, flushed with excitement, consumed by anticipation, and that opens the door to sin even further. Because we not only see God's word attacked, but now we see Satan attacking God's goodness. The shift is from God's word to attacking God himself. Look at verse 5. Encouraged by Eve's comments or revision, Satan goes after God himself. He attacks his goodness. It says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And cast God in an ugly light. According to the serpent, the threat of death is just a scare tactic to keep Adam and Eve in their place. God is repressive and jealous that they might ascend to his level. It's an incredible attack in light of all those and it was good sayings that we had of creation. Not to mention the gift of each other, the dominion of the earth, all of which came from God. It's nothing less than a blatant slur on God's character. But Eve's buying in and it would alter life forever. See, the lie bore the lure of divinity. You will be like God. Sin has an intrinsic spiritual lure. It seems to hold a golden promise. If you're in bondage to sin, you'll see God's prohibitions just as barriers to overcome. And if Eve would just stretch forth her lovely hand and take the fruit, divinity would be hers. The lie also holds out the lure of moral autonomy. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. By taking the fruit, she would become wise. She would become equal with God. She would get to decide what's right and wrong. How intoxicating is that? She gets to make the rules. She gets to do it her way. That promise still intoxicates us. We all want control. And during this dialogue of dissent, Satan attacked God's word, and then he attacked God's goodness. And Eve stood still for it. It's deception of the highest order. It's as if Satan's asking, you know, what's with all these rules? Why have boundaries? Weren't you made to be free? Can't you see that God is afraid that you're going to end up like him? The seeds of doubt that lead to death are sown. The trap is set. But note here what he tried to do. The serpent wanted to see her to see God's commands in a new light. 
perhaps understand them differently than was originally intended, to give them a new context. And that's exactly how we misuse and misunderstand Scripture today. We try to put it in a new light. We understand it differently than how it was intended. We give it a new context. And we lead people merrily astray. The serpent attempts to portray God as this selfish, insecure deity who's irrationally afraid that his creation will no longer need him unless there's restrictions placed on them. And Satan further baits her with the idea that unrestricted freedom and human reason are the highest of all virtues. And if that weren't enough, he appeals to the prideful idea that you can be like God. You can be your own God. And ironically, I guess not ironically, many world religions, cults, all sorts of false teaching throughout history perpetrate these same ideas. Knowledge is the highest virtue. You can become your own God. Unrestricted freedom is a must. Satan's strategies and tactics just haven't changed all that much. So as we begin this journey through the most misused and misunderstood verses in the Bible, we have to realize right from the start that misquoting and misusing God's word has been Satan's strategy to undermine the rightful reign and authority of God from the very beginning. This is how Satan led humanity down the path of destruction, and it can all be traced back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve, in fact, died right there at the knowledge, tree of the knowledge of good and evil even while the taste of the fruit was still on their lips. One commentator explains in the Bible, death is the reverse of life. It's not the reverse of existence. To die does not mean to cease to be, but in biblical terms, it means to be cut off from the land of the living. It is a diminished existence, but nevertheless still in existence. And since dying is still existing, Adam and Eve's existence was now one of death. And not only that, sin immediately penetrates every sphere of their, their being, like dropping a, a drop of a colored dye into a pail of water. And it just sort of colors all the water. They are at once utterly sinful. The Apostle Paul may have been thinking of Genesis 2, where it said, you shall surely die, when he wrote Ephesians 5. We read part of Ephesians 5 as our responsive uh, reading this morning. Ephesians 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul's assertion that all sin describes an action that was completed in past time. We all sinned in Adam when Adam sinned. And because of this, we also died. Paul explains Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We too entered the world dead and depraved since sin colors every part of our existence. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you possibly could be. Everyone could be a lot worse. It does mean there is no part of you that is not tainted by sin. That every aspect of us has been tainted by sin. There's nothing pure. You could be worse. Not advocating that. But 
since sin affects every part of us, our reaction is just like Adam and Eve. We hide from God. We don't seek God. Adam and Eve as our first parents are genetically, historically, theologically, every man and every woman. They're the paradigm for us all. Not only in their original sin, but also because the way they attempted to deal with their sin is the pattern in which we attempt to deal with our sin. And the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve is the way he deals with us. Adam and Eve had fallen from this pinnacle of innocence and intimacy to this pit of guilt and division. And what Satan told them was half true. They didn't die that day as they thought they would. And Adam lived another 930 years. Yet they did die. Their constant communion with God underwent death. They would go to earthly graves. They would need a savior. Their eyes were open. They got the knowledge they sought, but they got it the wrong way. They saw evil. They saw themselves. Their innocence evaporated. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. And now they would have to labor to love God and to love each other. And the New Testament encourages us to be aware of Satan's schemes. Genesis is packed with wisdom in this regard. From Adam and Eve's sin, we learn that sin takes hold when we begin to doubt God's word and we begin to doubt God's goodness. So what are we as children of Adam to do since we share such solidarity with him in our sins that were thoroughly sinful and utterly responsible and fully blamable? What's the answer? May I suggest that in a sense... We should blame Jesus. That sounds controversial. More accurately, we are to rest our blame on Jesus. That sounds better. How so? Back to our responsive reading, Romans 5. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, the first Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. After all, Satan tried the same deception on Jesus that he used with Adam and Eve. I mean, it worked the first time. Worked with the first Adam, maybe it'll work with the second Adam. And if anyone is aware of Satan's schemes to misuse the authority of Scripture, it was Jesus. In the Gospels, we see Satan attempt to exploit Jesus in a moment of weakness with his head on assault on the word of God. The context is simple. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist and then led by the Spirit of God out into the Judean wilderness to be tempted and tested by the devil. And he's out there 40 days. He's hungry. He's tired. He's weak. He's fully human. You didn't go out there for a banquet. And all this is in preparation for his earthly ministry. And it's here that Satan goes after him, tempting him first with food and then with power. So temptations that are aimed at both his body and soul. Satan's once again seeking to be equal with God by bringing God down to his level. However, the sinless Christ refutes the first two attacks by appealing to Scripture. Written long ago by God's servant Moses, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. 
He knows that the weapon needed for victory in moments of temptation is God's word. And he wields the sword with precision to fight off his attacker. And then the devil tries his most creative assault. He uses the very weapon that Jesus is using, the word of God, and tries to manipulate a section from Psalm 91 for his own purposes. We read Luke 4, verses 9 through 11. And Satan took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's interesting here is Satan not only knows the word of God, and not only uses the word of God, but this time, unlike the garden, he chooses to quote it correctly. In other words, it's not a misquote of the verse, it's a misuse of the verse. Instead of seeing that this part of, excuse me, of Psalm 91 is a general promise by God to care for his people. He inappropriately applies it to a situation that seeks to test God's sovereignty. And Jesus sees right through it. And once again, he thwarts the attack by quoting scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, and he applies it accurately. Luke 4, verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Our second Adam was the one man in history who never tried to pass the buck. Because as a sinless man, he never needed to pass on the responsibility for sin. Rather, as our sinless Savior, he said, pass the blame to me. The buck stopped with Jesus. And wise people will still listen to him. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so quick to pass the buck and pass the blame and pretend we didn't do it. And we're so slow to confess our sin and seek your forgiveness. As Paul said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, grant that we would know you better through your word that we would use it and understand it correctly and grant that we would believe it, one God, now and forever. Amen. Maybe the first time we've had a baby lead worship. <laughs> Just say. Hear God's blessing again from Romans 5. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. God bless you. We'll see you next week.